Welcome to this podcast from the BMJ, created in collaboration with the World Health Organization and UN University. This series is a part of the collection on women's health and gender inequalities and is celebrating the 25 years since the Beijing Declaration on Women's Rights. I'm Vismita Gupta-Smith. In these podcasts, we've been talking to women who are making change in healthcare, doctors, researchers, legislators, and campaigners, all working towards building a future in which women can thrive. As well as these in-depth discussions, we will hear from experts who have written for the collection to give you insights into how they think the world should change. In this third podcast, I had the pleasure of talking to Hina Jelani. Hina is a pioneering lawyer and activist who's been campaigning for women's rights in her native Pakistan, and she's also one of the elders, the global inspirational leaders. She and her sisters set up the first female law firm in Pakistan. She established a refuge for women who were fleeing violence and abuse. She was also one of the founders of the Human Rights Commission of Pakistan. Hina is now an advocate on the country's Supreme Court. Hina and I talked about her career and how she has pulled the various levers of change, lobbying the legislation, legal challenge, and protest to improve the lives of women in Pakistan. So, uh, Hinaji, my first question to you is, you in your early days when you were starting in Pakistan, you formed Dastak, which was an organization which gave access to women who didn't have access to legal and free access to legal advice and counseling. As you were shaping uh, this organization and your work, describe to us the social, the political influences that were shaping your work in women's rights and uh, women's health. You know, Vismita, I come from a family that has always been influenced by uh, their struggle against um, military dictatorships, uh, political repression, um, and you know, generally uh, disrespect for human rights. My father was a politician, and he was um, more a human rights defender than a politician. And um, uh, he remained in prison most of my childhood. So uh, the environment was always there to feel outraged when injustice was surrounding uh, your personal life as well as you know the life of the nation. And this was the social uh, environment that we were confronting, where Pakistan's state was uh, deliberately fostering uh, religious conservatism, uh, was targeting uh, women's uh, rights in particular, making the status of women that we had achieved um, even before independence more and more controversial. So this was something that, uh, you know, uh, uh, resulted in the emergence of the women's movement in Pakistan. Hinaji, uh, within this context, this socio-political context, what was the status of women's health and gender equity? And how, how did that come into play with your, your uh, larger work? You see, now, one of the things that I think I must emphasize here is that um, at that time, um, our concern was very much with regard to the social impact of religious uh, fundamentalism or extremism, whatever you call it and want to call it, or conservatism, 
what impact it was having on women's social status. And we found that amongst many concerns that we have in that context, one of the greatest concerns was how uh, is women's uh, health also being affected because of the emphasis and focus of the Islamization on a narrative that they had created with regard to where is the women's place. So number one, on reproductive rights, they were only concerned with women being, you know, just responsible in our society for reproducting, for reproducing. And that th this was our main concern. Women's health was also a part of our gender-based violence uh, issues, because there we were also confronting very, very serious, not just issues, but also resistance from the state and its agencies to enforce legislation, but more than legislation, bring about mechanisms on the, on the ground for implementing protection for women against gender-based violence. And uh, we were also very um, aware that uh, the state is in many ways deliberately fostering perceptions about women, their bodies, how the social responsibility of women is limited to the home and therefore just reproducing children, but without any, any uh, programs or policies on giving women a full access to reproductive health. I remember a time when a woman who had nine children already came to me and said she doesn't want to have any more children. And when she approached the uh, um, family planning and population control agencies here, they told her that they will not help her unless her husband comes and uh, authorizes them to do so. And she was sure that her husband would not allow it. So these are some of the situations that we were confronting at that time. Women had absolutely no agency, no choice uh, was allowed in marriage. And there were thousands of cases where women who had married with their own choice were conf confronting prosecution brought about by their own parents under the notorious, uh, what we called Zina laws, which were laws on extramarital sex, um, uh, when, when parents refused to recognize marriages that these women had um, entered into with their own choices. So there were so many issues at that time. And by the way, that was also the reason why Dastak, the shelter, was created. It was mostly for these women who nobody else would want to accommodate because they felt the other shelters that we can't give, give access to women who are the so-called transgressors. So that, that is what why Dastak has become really an icon in many ways. Because we, we, we are giving women protection with dignity. Well, my name is Lia Quartabelle and I, and I am an Italian member of parliament. A uh, member of the Foreign Affairs Committee, uh, and I work on SDGs mainly, uh, and on within that on sexual and reproductive rights of women. Uh, it's difficult to imagine how Italian women could fare worse than they do compared to other European countries, but they do after COVID. Uh, Italy is the country before COVID was the country with the lowest employment rate of women. And it, it has gone even worse than that. 
the technical solutions are there. Uh, the drawers of uh, certain ministries in Italy uh, are full of plans on kindergarten, on self-sufficiency of old people, on how to get women back to work. But the appetite to buy these drawers full of plans is low. Uh, and this is where we have to work a lot. I have to say that COVID has made uh, this kind of work a lot more urgent, but to an extent also easier. Because Italian women realized that they risk going back to the 50s. Um, and so there is a lot of pressure from the public opinion. But to be honest, the fact that uh, mainly men are in power makes these things very difficult. I just think that men don't see this part of, of life. They, they really don't see it. I honestly believe that uh, 95% of them just don't see it because they're used to a different world. Changes are complicated because you can't see what the world is like. Uh, so I don't think, I mean, I don't think there is a... People that uh, believe they don't want to change because they benefit directly from it. But they do benefit directly from it, and that's why they don't want to change. Italian women have had enough. And COVID really um, showed them that they have to fight. I did a small lab with uh, women from my city a few days ago. And lots of them came, even if they have young children. They came and one of them said, I mean, it's, it is quite a news in Italy that women leave children at home with their partner or with the grandparents and go to a political meeting. We, we are just out of the, the lockdowns. Maybe women like anyone else would like just to go out and have fun. And instead, like, tens of women came to, to the lab and one of them explained to me why. She said, you know, she, she's in her mid-30s. She said, you know, I never thought that I had to fight for my rights. Probably I put a signature for um, enlarging abortion rights or against sexism. But I never thought about being in politics, about taking a commitment in politics. But I did this this time. Because during the lockdown, I realized that at a certain point, somebody could decide to take away schools or to take away help that I have from, social, from like the general welfare state. And if I didn't protest, if I didn't voice my problems, nobody else would. And I would go back to the 50s without even realizing. So I, thought, I felt and I feel the urge to, to be there. So this is their you. How, how, do, how do they go on? Why do they keep fighting even if the situation is complicated? Because they have to. Because the situation is so bad and it risks getting worse. On the other hand, how I, I work, um, I keep going because I think there is only one revolution that wasn't defeated in, 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 in the last century, in the 20th century which was a female revolution. It, wa it was the only good, uh, sweet, but continuous revolution, 
women today live much better than my grandmother did, than my mother did. So I know things will be better. But when this will happen, it depends on us. Energy will talk more about the international alliances that you made and your work on the international stage as well. But I want to, you've just described the political, the religious, the social sort of uh, framework within which you were working. Um, how in that, in that uh, paradigm, how, what were the strategies to actually put in place the right policies, bring in investment into uh, areas of women's health and gender equity. How, how did you proceed with that? Describe that to us. Frankly, the period of the 80s was really a period where we knew that we are not going to get the successes we need. But this was a period that we strategically used to build public opinion. We felt that we have to bring all these movements into our movement in a way in which our demands become a part of the agenda of the labor movement, uh, where you know the labor movement became more sensitive to the rights of women labor. Uh, the labor movement then also put into their demands all uh, uh, issues related to women who were working, um, you know, so uh, maternity leave, etc. Everything became um, much more visible as a demand with regard to establishing women's right to human rights. So this was one strategy. The other strategy was disengaging with this never ending conversation and discussion on what is allowed in Islam and what is not. You know, Islam can be interpreted in many ways and uh, it has been interpreted in many ways. And we felt that, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, another different interpretation by us would not be the uh, reason uh, that change happens. So we had to make sure that we are uh, projecting and promoting the international standards of human rights and basing our demands basically on those international standards. Also, I think uh, it was a very, I think, smart strategy that we made sure that we did not take an issue to court on the basis of the, our constitutional rights, because our constitutional far, you know, is is in many ways uh, uh, quite has quite substantial rights of equality, non-discrimination, etc. But we knew that the, that the judiciary is not independent of both social bias or pressures of the military government. So we were very selective in when we went to court and when we took our struggle to the streets. There were many days during the 1980s, especially between 80 and 85, when I was constantly being taken to police stations or being put in prison and other women too, just for our struggle on, on women's rights. We were beaten up brutally in many protest demonstrations that we were holding. And remember, this was a military regime. Freedom of Assembly was absolutely repressed. So women were very brave and courageous in going to the streets with their, their, um, their issues. But that was part of our strategy because our main aim was to build public opinion. All activists may, may face this kind of resistance, may face uh, this kind of use of force. But when it comes to women activists, there are added dimensions to the threat. 
uh, and the risks that they face. So please talk to us about that. You know, as uh, the special representative of the UN Secretary General on Human Rights Defenders, I have said time and again that I do respect the belief that all human rights defenders are always at risk and, and at, in, uh, under threat. But you know, there are some human rights defenders because of the kind of work that they do or the gender that they belong to, they are under additional risks. They suffer from additional um, marginalization, vilification, repudiation socially, uh, even by their own families at times. And I include women and transgender um, persons fighting for their rights uh, amongst these particular section of the human rights defenders who have added problems. You know, Vismita, um, you and I come from a culture where we know that social activism has resulted in direct uh, threats and also harm to women human rights defenders only because of their gender. In our country, many of these social activists were gang raped by non-state actors or tortured physically uh, 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 in police custody. They were raped in police police custody while they were, um, uh, you know, when they were incarcerated under any kind of laws for because of their activism. Now, male counterparts are also um, subjected to torture and other kinds of abuse. But this particular problem for women, even if they are not raped in police custody, once they are out of police custody, the social stigma that is attached only because they were arrested is very difficult for many women to, 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 to uh, bear and brings an end to their activism sometimes because of family pressures or social pressures. So we know that this category of human rights defenders has additional vulnerabilities. Well, let's talk about when knowing these vulnerabilities and these risks, how, how did uh, you and other women and men who worked with you keep that courage and keep that the vision in 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 view uh, it seems like this would be i mean and in many parts of the world women activists would be facing similar situations even today how does one keep going on you know i wouldn't say it's courage i'm not a politic particularly courageous person but it's need that we have no option when we are living under certain kind of circumstances, and we look around in our environment, a level of injustice which is absolutely unacceptable, then your outrage has to be vented. There has to be some steps that you take uh, uh, to change the situation that you are uh, um, not, uh, you know, you're not able to accept and not just whine about it, not just complain about it. So I've always said that if you're not willing to step up and act to change your environment, then don't complain. So I think it's it's more the need rather than the courage that drives you to keep fighting. And as I've said, you know, and I'm very uh, inspired by Nelson Mandela's words that um, to the effect that you always think that things are impossible till they happen. And I know that what we thought impossible, we did make happen. Not everything, but many things we did make happen. I'm Asha George. I'm a professor at the School of Public Health at the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. So violence against female health workers, it's, it's, 
It's an issue that's been uh, documented over time, but not an issue that has had huge recognition. A lot of the responses to the issues of violence against health workers and female health workers focuses on the immediate event, on, on the incidence of violence. And I was struck by the work linking that to the work that has really taken shape over the last two decades at looking more deeply at how the health workforce is structured and what are the inequalities that underpin, that explain why such violence happens and why it continues without um, sufficient recognition and response. People have known, researchers have known that the health workforce has very strong gender disparities for quite some time, but it has been, I would say, um, advocates, advocacy movements that have really encapsulated recently saying that the health workforce is delivered by women, but led by men. And I think that very succinct and snappy statement that hits hard at the realities has caught people's imaginations. When it comes to changing things, um, there's, there's, you can use a power analysis to describe and understand the root causes of something like violence against women. And that's what we did in the article by creating this iceberg dimension of looking across all the different forms of inequality and how they're linked to power relations. Um, but it can also, a power lens can also be used to look at what is the way in which we we support change. And there are some very useful frameworks that look at how do you um, how do you trigger change? Um, so, for instance, first it's it's there's this idea of power within. Women in the health workforce themselves have to believe in their own capabilities and expertise, despite the many forms of hierarchy they face in the workplace. So there's an element of empowerment of those who have been marginalized or are at the margins uh, of the health workforce. Um, then there's an element of coalition building, so power with others. Um, they can't on their own affect change, but it's really how do they build effective coalitions with um, decision makers, policy makers, other social movements um, to really raise your healthcare needs are not going to be met if we're, our um, safety and protection is not met. And certainly some of that community mobilization, for instance, there's a huge amount of gang violence in in the informal areas, uh, the very poor and marginalized areas that have a history of apartheid. Um, but it's working with community members to make sure that ambulance drivers can can enter those communities safely. So how do we build coalitions um, to protect health workers? Um, and I think the most important and perhaps relevant to current discussions with COVID-19, there's this idea of power under. So I think with taking it to a different realm altogether, often people have said, oh, what we need is women leaders. And I think there's this mythology that if women are in charge, things will be better. And uh, I am a feminist and I do think that we need to have more women in charge. But that alone, if you don't change the power structures, that alone is not going to make a difference. And I think there have been some 
more nuanced analysis that shows that in terms of leadership, women do provide um, better decision-making for health and for social policies, but that is also linked to the broader social contract in the country. Um, and it's part of a history and uh, a political economy that values those things. Um, and otherwise, we can have women leaders who can be particularly destructive. Um, and so it's, it, I think a power analysis is very helpful in being more critical in understanding who, who can affect change and how they can affect change. It's not individuals on their own. Yes, individuals need to be empowered, but they need to work with others and they have to be critical. Um, we need to have a basis to make sure that abuse of power is held in check as well. I want to talk about the uh, the Beijing Declaration. Paint us a picture. When you went to the Beijing uh, to Beijing, uh, and this declaration was being formulated, and when it actually, uh, you know, you had the declaration, what was the significance of it? What was the buzz around it? What were the hopes and aspirations of women and men who helped? You? Look, everything started pre the Beijing conference. I, I think, in a way, women were smart enough to understand that we have to do a lot of preparatory work. I have explained to you that in some countries, there were already movements which were putting governments under pressure in the 1990s. That, that global women's movement was already having an impact on government's uh, um, uh, willingness, political willingness to bring about some change. So a lot of what went into the Beijing Platform for Action was something that women had been debating and discussing and refining our formulations of how we want to formulate these demands much before the Beijing conference. So it, in some ways, that preparation did prepare us for the conference and for making interventions in the official uh, uh, plenaries and, and talking to the uh, official actors at, at those conferences. We had already started making access and making contacts with the diplomatic missions wherever we had the opportunity in order to gain the access that we needed in Beijing, to be able to feed them our point of view, to be able to convince them, use the right arguments, depending on which country it was that we were talking to and which leader it was that we were talking to. We in Pakistan, of course, were fortunate enough to have Benazir Bhutto as the prime minister at that time. So there was very little resistance. But also Benazir's government was very much afraid of the mullah lobby, the religious lobby. So they were also being very cautious. So they were also not always very open to what we as women's rights activists were wanting. And our agenda was in many ways also uh, based on some of the universal demands that we were making from the global women's movement. So these were some of the things that we went with to Beijing. And the enthusiasm I saw in Beijing was so inspiring. Uh, I was still young enough, of course, to be enthusiastic myself. But um, I did see, you know, women of all color, women from every background, women from all over the world. They were roaming around Beijing, not just uh, uh, being enthused by the conference, but also being 
um, in many ways, uh, people whose um, you know the, whose mind was being broadened in that particular environment. So these are some of the things I still remember from Beijing. Of course, there were many difficult and painful moment, moments. There were there was constant argument with certain uh, forces that were giving us very very strict resistance. And let me also frankly state that the final result was not all that we wanted. We had much more expectations than we got. But like all uh, human rights defenders, we we know how to work uh, with the minimum. We got what we wanted to an extent where we felt we can go forward with it. And we can build on this. So these are some of the things I think I remember from Beijing. And I think it opened the world to the possibilities and the potential of women in this world globally. They understood that these women have now become a political force, both globally and in their own countries. And that I think the 90s brought for us. And in the, in the, after 2000, I think this rapid uh, legal transformation that we got in our legislative frameworks helped. Obviously, laws are not enough. And that's why we haven't been able to make the progress on the ground that we hoped that it would make, because the mechanisms on the ground and the national or the, the state social policy is still hesitant to back up those laws to bring about the change. Both in your country, both in India, and uh, you know India very well. Both in India and Pakistan, we have seen a regression, despite all these achievements. Okay, so um, Hinaji, I want to interrupt you at this time to talk about um, the the work that women's uh, that activists and women's rights advocates have done inside and outside uh, organizations. You yourself have worked both from the outside as well as from the inside with the UN and other organizations. And we heard one of our young activists, um, uh, Fila Magnus uh, in, in this series say, uh, talk about the challenges that you can face when you're inside uh, and, and are an ally for, for the cause of women's rights. Talk to us about these challenges and, and what would be your advice on how to be that ally from inside and drive change? You know, I really have not technically ever been on the inside. When I was working with the UN, I was working as, a, as an independent expert, even in my position as the special representative of the Secretary General on Human Rights Defenders. This was an independent position that I held. Uh, so I was never inside the UN and I always had the opportunity and also the instinct to speak truth to power even within the UN. But I do believe that in, as a civil society activist and a human rights defender, whether on women's rights or other uh, rights of the, of the people, more vulnerable communities, especially uh, non -Muslim, uh, any kind of minorities or indigenous people's rights, I have always felt that friends within mechanisms and institutions are, uh, have been of great, great support for us in winning some of the victories that we today uh, um, project as, as big victories for us. So there are people inside institutions who, despite the restraints that the institutions, because of the overall and broad policies imposed on these institutions, may hesitate 
to to um, uh, give space to civil society or give uh, some kind of um, importance and significance to civil society voices and our agendas. I do believe that much has been done with friends inside the UN, but it really depends on your personality. If you are committed, there are ways that you can find, despite your institution's restraints, to help out in promoting certain agendas. If you are convinced that these are agendas that, you know, that that your conscience uh, would want you to project, and I have, you know, I've really sometimes met uh, amazing people in these institutions who have taken risk of their jobs to make sure that certain things happen, and they did make them happen. On the other hand, there are those kinds of insiders who go in with a lot of fanfare saying they will make change happen from within. And that's why they are going into an institution. You know, and in their case, I've noticed that once you are in the inside, you become a part of the same culture. And it becomes impossible, impossible for you to uh, bring down the walls that you, want, that you wanted to bring down when you were on the outside. And at, and at some stage, your commitment to bringing those walls down also wanes and fades away. So there are two things, two separate experiences that I have seen. Uh, I'm Veloshni Govinda. I'm a scientist in the Department of Sexual and Reproductive Health and Research in WHO in, in headquarters. And the focus of my work is on health system strengthening and more specifically on um, universal health coverage. So if, you, if you're striving towards uh, universal health coverage, it's very important that we de-link employment and ability to pay from healthcare access. Women are overrepresented in lower positions they are underrepresented in positions of management and leadership. There is the, the pay gap of approximately 20% between men and women. And all these gaps are wider for, for women with children. And women also perform more than 80% of unpaid care work. So we know that more than 600 million women worldwide engage in full-time unpaid care. Now, what does obviously translate? If we're looking, if we have employment as a basis for healthcare access, then that's going to leave out 80%, you know, many, many women across the world. And they may then have only entitlements to healthcare if they're dependents based on their, 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 their partners. Uh, unfortunately, when you have men, you may not necessarily have that perspective, or I would go far as saying that empathy to be able to understand what it is for women. So I'll give you a an example of where we need to kind of step into the shoes of, of others. And this comes from occupational health, um, where women working in, um, in, in South Africa in the, on the wine farms, um, their overalls were just a one piece. Um, and if they needed to go and relieve themselves, they were not able to because it's a one piece and there was no place for them. Whereas for men, it's much easier to just sit down and it makes it way easier. And until these women, people interview them, um, did they realize that there was a problem with the way their uh, the, the, the uniforms were designed? 
And I think until you uh, bring these people, bring groups that are left behind into the discussion, their voices will not necessarily be heard. And we've seen that time and time again. I mean, I think a more recent example is with the Swiss uh, Army, where the uniforms were again, and this is quite recent, uh, were, were designed for men in mind. Um, the, the, the needs of women were, were completely were, were neglected. And I think this applies for discussions around um, how skewed employment-based health insurance is. Uh, it's, it's skewed for everybody who's not employed. It skews against everyone who's not employed. Um, and women are, unfortunately, the ones who suffer from that the most. And unless we are able to bring women to the table and have those discussions um, with them, what we need to understand is that what are the actual needs and how the health system and current health financing actually leaves them behind. Um, and that should be really the the drive for how health financing is designed. Energy, uh, let's talk about the pandemic. Uh, we're living in the midst of it right now. How has this pandemic impacted women's rights and women's health? Um, it, not just in Pakistan, but globally, what are you seeing? Look, um, I run a shelter for women. And when COVID came, we, none of us had really experienced this type of an emergency. We had we have prepared ourselves for all kinds of emergencies, but we never thought this could, would be something we had to confront. Every place was closed down. Now women in trouble found it so difficult to reach out. They were closed inside their homes uh, with the uh, viol viol violence happening inside. Uh, many factors are triggering that violence. There is nobody that she can reach out to at a time. So in the beginning, I felt that um, the number of women who were approaching us really dropped a great deal. And that worried us. Collectively, it wasn't just my shelter, but collectively, the women's uh, organizations in Pakistan and those who are involved in these uh, protection institutions, uh, we felt that this is a worrying stage. So I think it was at our insistence that um, legal uh, mechanisms that were on paper in the laws, but were never operational, it was at our pressure that they started becoming more and more operational. Helplines were uh, created, established, and information on these helplines was it started to be disseminate, disseminated so that it get, can get to women. And I tell you, within the next four or five months, the calls we used to get on our helpline in Dastak really became almost 10 times more. So I, I, I think women were under a great deal of pressure also in, on, in, the, in the area of gender-based violence. Then came the COVID closures and the economic um, depression that came. Women were the first to lose their jobs. Several thousand women working in the textile industry, they were the first ones to be retrenched when closures happened. Women working at home, who were doing, you know, uh, 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 cottage in the cottage industry or piecemeal work, 
they were the ones to suffer and when the time for giving relief came much of the relief came through processes in which women couldn't participate for instance a large number of women in pakistan are not registered they do not have the identity cards the national identity cards and when relief uh, efforts and initiatives were based on national identity cards these women were left out of the safety net and nobody had bothered to fight, to point that out hina ji you're uh, clearly a treasure trove of lived experiences of successes failures challenges um and and big milestones in 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 this journey of uh, towards women's rights and women's uh, health and equity so i could go on talking to you forever but i know your time is at a premiere so i want to close this podcast with uh, with your views on uh, where you think we've come since the beijing declaration has it lived up to the the promises and aspirations that you had at that time which you you admitted that you, you know it wasn't all, everything that you you and and the women and men at that time wanted um where are we today what is where have we failed and how do we make progress towards it really quickly as i said i, I didn't think that um, uh, the beijing beijing platform for action uh, said everything that we wanted to put in there but as i'm a human rights lawyer and i can't tell a woman who's sitting with before me with a problem uh, that sister you wait till we become bring, bring about legislative or social change we have to find a way within the existing systems to bring relief so we knew that we will work with this the problem for us is that while we did achieve legislative change we were uh, also on our way to getting political commitment of governments to support women's rights the more we succeeded the stronger the back- backlash came and i think a, 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 especially in this region of south asia i think while there is a strong civil society movement and women are a strong part of the agenda of the civil society movements for promotion of human rights i think we still have to become a strong enough political force to make sure that our efforts that can be made to promote our agendas with the confidence that we thought at the time of uh, uh, the the beijing conference that we will be able to achieve i think that confidence in some ways was misplaced because our political visibility is something we have to work on more i am not a uh, uh, pessimistic i'm i'm a i am optimistic about our 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 um, our um, successes i do believe that human rights defenders cannot uh, even afford the luxury of pessimism and i have always felt that uh, my belief is really in my struggle for me successes are bonus even the small successes keep me energized to fight more and more so i believe that despite governments we will win the struggle will be painful it has been painful but doesn't matter it's worth investing our time and our energies in this struggle where we have come from the 80s if you really look at it objectively it is amazing the successes we have had of course the gaps are still pretty large and we have a long way to go but as i said mandela said 
You know, everything seems impossible till you achieve it. Inaji, thank you so much for those words. It's so inspiring to see the optimism and determination in your voice. And there's so many women's rights activists and advocates who will draw a lot of inspiration from that. So thank you so much for your time. And, and we hope to connect with you soon sometime again. Thank you so much, Ms. Mita. It was really, really good talking to you. You've been listening to Hina Jilani. The additional interviews in this podcast were Asha George, Leah Quatrapella, and Veloshni Govinder. This discussion was part of the collection on women's health and gender inequalities and was made in collaboration with the World Health Organization and UN University. A link to the rest of that collection is in the show notes. We have published two more of these podcasts. Our first is about women campaigning for change, and the second was about the role of science in supporting advocacy and change. Those are available on the BMJ podcast, available in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Vismita Gupta-Smith. Thank you for listening.